0: programming note. I was all set to dive into the pro-German elements in the United States before Pearl Harbor. You know, the fifth column and all that. And we will get to that. But I stumbled across a short clip of the Baba Black Sheep show from the 1970s, and I got a warm feeling all over. If you're too young, none of this will make any sense. Sorry about that. Suffice it to say, let's do a few episodes on Gregory Boyington, The Marine pilot, because he was in the AVG, he was in Burma, he worked with Claire Chenault, which did go rather badly between them, but as we have covered the first part of Burma, I figure he's fair game. On with the hard-drinking, fighting, original Top Gun, Pappy. Hello and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 189, The Original Top Gun. I've always been fond, or rather fascinated, by people who seem to embody the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and Gregory Boynton was one such man. He messed up most things in his life, which was hard, as he started out being abused by his father. He wrote a great-selling book after the war, Helped with a TV show about himself, obviously making money along the way, but struggled with money his entire life. Oh, he had money. He just had other priorities. He did not take orders well, which is strange, as he was in the Marine Corps. He liked to drink and was by many accounts a mean drunk. But all the darkness that was in his head or his heart faded into silence when he was in the cockpit. Or rather, he used his demons to be a ruthless warrior. Moreover, his true leadership qualities came to the fore only when he was in charge of the Black Sheep Squadron, giving the Japanese pilots hell, scoring 14 kills in 32 days during his first tour of duty as a squadron commander. He would finish with 28 confirmed kills. As this was during the Solomon Islands campaign, he and his squadron along with others helped halt the enemy's advance and took away the one thing that was paramount in modern combat, control of the skies. As if the universe wanted to test Gregory Boyington even before he was born, his grandfather, Joseph Boyington Jr., settled down in Coeur Aling, Idaho in 1902, but seemed to have accomplished very little. He died in March of 1926. Joseph's son, Charles, Pappy's father, seemed poised to turn the family's ship of state around as he moved to Evingston, Illinois, and earned a degree in dentistry. And yet, moving back to Cordialine, he opened up a practice that was good, but it was evident to those around him that he had a violent temper. He quickly married, but then divorced, a local girl. Next, he married a Grace Gregory in January of 1912. Within three months, Grace was pregnant with Gregory, our Gregory, who was born on December 4, 1912. But fate stepped in, and a fire soon destroyed the hospital, and along with it, little Gregory's birth certificate. This would come back into Pappy's life. This was only the beginning of a streak of bad luck, as little Greg's parents fought all the time. Charles was gone a lot, it was not work-related, and Grace, she refused to remain within the confines of what early 20th century American culture dictated in terms of seeing other men. By the time Gregory was three, his parents were divorced, but Grace landed on her feet by taking up with a Ellsworth Hallenbeck and they moved to a lumberjack town 20 miles south of Gregory's current location. The wooded area was probably a treat for the young boy, but any pleasure was canceled out as Ellsworth was also violent and a drinker to boot, who had accusations against him for inappropriate behavior towards some of his other future children. As Greg grew up, he would have few constants in his life, his love of heights, getting into accidents, and his mom, Grace, being there to pick him up. Oh, and one more trait that was beginning to emerge. He never took anyone's advice about anything, and he never backed down from a fight, no matter how many beatings he took. So it will come as no surprise that the pilots of the Great War captured Gregory's admiration, especially Manfred von Richthofen, the Red Baron, and Eddie Rickenbacker, the American pilot who was called the Ace of Aces, for shooting down more enemy aircraft than any other American pilot. And there would be another flying enthusiast in Gregory's life, one Henry Hap Arnold, the future Army Air Corps commander. Young Hap was told of flying by an Army officer. Young man, I know of no better way for a person to commit suicide. Not that it mattered because Gregory's hometown, St. Mary's, had its own flying hero, Clyde Pangborn, who flew stunts in the Gates Flying Circus. Not that the boy knew the 19-year-old star or his name, simply that he was a pilot, and when the circus came to town, the pilot landed near Gregory's school. The five-year-old ran straight out of his classroom to the pilot and begged for a ride, only to be told, sure, but it will cost you five dollars first. To wit, the boy ran home and got the money, either from Ellsworth or his mom. The story is vague. Either way, the next day, Gregory went up with Pangborn, and he found his calling. To have one's life purpose spelled out so young is great, but how to achieve it, that is something altogether different. But that was settled when a teacher's husband came by the school. He was a Marine and looked marvelous in his uniform. For Gregory, that was it. He would fly for the military and look good while doing it. Naturally thick and strong, when in high school, Gregory gravitated towards wrestling and swimming, but also the yearbook. When he graduated in 1930, his yearbook said of him, he can't be beat. Perhaps not, but a lack of funds can be quite the opponent. In the fall of 1930, Boynton started at the University of Washington in Seattle. The plan was to study architecture and engineering. Where was the love of aviation? Oh, It was still there, but flying was a rich man's game. Besides, Gregory had also been fond of drawing, and now he would use that to build a career. But the dream was still there. Gregory did enroll in the Army Reserve Officers Training Corps and became the captain of the Cadet Corps. To be clear, Gregory was still using the last name Hallenbeck, as in Ellis Hallenbach, as his father's true identity was still unknown to him. And it was a Gregory Hallenbach that the university's wrestling coach saw win a bout in an intramural tournament. Another good, but brief moment in a life that seemed not to have an airplane in its future. But all that was about to change. Driving around in his Model T Ford on a Sunday, Gregory just happened, if you leave Freud out of this, to drive near the Boeing Aircraft Company's factory. As it was a Sunday, no one was around. The place was quiet. And near one of the hangars, Gregory's eyes rested on a F-4B fighter that Boeing made for the Marines. Getting out of his car and moving closer towards the aircraft, the young man noticed two things. One, the words Marine Corps was stenciled on the plane's side, and two, both wings had chains on them and it was right there in his desire to free the plane, his future was laid out before him. Quote, I had an emotional feeling run through my body that I wanted to unchain this little plane and take it up on up to wherever it would be happy. Of course, the plane was a metaphor for himself, his life, his dreams. That five-year-old boy who rode with Clyde Pangborn all those years ago had emerged, and between that boy and this man, on this earth, life was hard, and Gregory was limited, and he knew it. But up there, well, for whatever reason, up there, he was at peace. Yet now it was time to mix some reality in with these dreams. Though his architecture studies were going well, the Great Depression was lingering over all those who were about to graduate. Simply... Few new buildings were being put up, hence his career path suddenly was dimmed for the immediate future. Besides, it wasn't just about Gregory anymore. Though he graduated at the end of 1934, he had met Helen Clark at an ROTC dance, and they were married the following summer. A son, Gregory Jr., was born on May 24, 1935, which is why his degree had been changed to aeronautical engineering. This landed him a job at that Boeing aircraft factory. That was the good news, that he had a job during the Depression. The bad news was that he was not flying planes, only drawing them. Quote, I was not happy at all. I sat there at my desk in the plant at the Boeing aircraft company, and I would be looking out the window whenever a plane went by. Actually, I was of very little use to the company unquote. Then fate stepped in, as it often does. By 1935, Hitler had the attention of all the other European countries, including the USA, and not in a good way. Hence, in April of 1935, Congress passed the Aviation Cadet Act to gather into the military branches more pilots. A recruit, if accepted, would get one year of training at a Navy flight school And it was a paying job. After that, he would have to serve for three more years as a cadet. But after the three years, he would be commissioned and his pay bumped up. At the end of the three years, there was a $1,500 bonus. It was perfect. Gregory could fly and take care of his family. Well, it was almost perfect. He still held the image of that chained fighter and the words stenciled onto it, Marine Corps. So he would join with them. However, as if serving as a dark cloud on the distant horizon, Gregory would say of this time, I didn't join the service to shine shoes and polish brass and do a lot of the things I had to do. I did them because there was the only way I could do what I really wanted to do, and that was fly the best aircraft that were available at the time. The irreverent boy had grown into an irreverent young man. And it's a good thing that Gregory had life going, generally, in his way, because he was about to take a shot right to the gut. While filling out the paperwork for the program, he discovered that he was the biological son of Charles Boyington, not Ellsworth Hallenbeck. This shook the young man to his core. But not only was there nothing he could do about it, the news, once he centered himself again, came to his aid. The Marines made it clear that they did not want married men in the program, and Gregory Hallenbach was married, but not so Gregory Boyington. Thus, that became his official name, while his wife and son were hidden away from the Marines. At least Charles had finally done something right for his boy. Now at Sandpoint, Washington, Boyington went through his ten hours of preliminary training then initial training flying, followed by a check flight, which all led up to his first solo flight on July 3rd, 1935. All he had to do was take off, circle around, and then land, all without crashing. And he did so, but that moment of freedom from everything stayed with him until the end of his life no longer a cadet, Boynton was sworn into the service on January 27, 1936, now in Pensacola, Florida, for further flight training. But first, he had to tolerate a bunch of classroom instruction on military methods, close order drill, etiquette, and then ship recognition, naval engineering, and other naval-related information. This was done, but barely, and next came the start of five steps of earning his wings with Squadron 1. But if he thought the classroom setting was a thing of the past, he was wrong. There were to be classroom instructions in the morning of different types of planes and how to fly those various types, followed in the afternoon by flying. Squadron 1 lasted for six weeks, and though Boynton got a warning for a flying mistake, he was able to recover and stayed in the program. Squadron 2 lasted for 18 weeks, and here the pilots learned basic aeronautics, cross-country flying, and night flying. And it was here that many of the students washed out. In fact, Boynton himself failed three check flights, but did better when he was given a second and last chance. But it was Squadron 3 that Boynton met his first enemy, and it wasn't the Japanese. One of the instructors was a Captain Joseph Smoak who sought opportunities to make a mark against the students. Boynton got by, but Smoak chewed him out plenty of times. But as long as he was through, Boynton was happy to see the back of this jerk, which wasn't the case. They would meet up again in the South Pacific. Progressing through the other squadrons, Boynton excelled when he got to fighters and air combat training. Up there, there was no one to criticize him, to judge him on his mistakes, or how they would have done it. He was as free as he would ever be. And in one of the one-on-one combat scenarios, Boynton went up against one of the Navy's top fighter pilots. The veteran won, of course, but he still passed Boynton as he was impressed. Then came the flying by instruments, alone, and learning how to land on the same space as a carrier, which Boyington passed. But it was his life on the ground that gave him problems. First, his wife Helen, left back home with Gregory Jr., was always asking for more money, and Boyington was sending her all he could, even living with other aviators to save on rent. But then he found out that she had moved in with another man. Hence, Pappy took to the bottle. This would become the norm for him when stressed. And so he entered his Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde phase. In the air, he was admired. On the ground, when he was drunk, he was avoided. But the man muddled through, and in 1937, he earned his wings. Honestly, it was the flying, and only that, that got him through. As for the other aspects of military life, he could have not cared less. As one friend put it, it's a wonder to me that he passed inspections or could march in parades, because none of that meant anything to him. He just loved to fly. Soon, Boyington was sent to Quantico, Virginia to be a part of Squadron VF 9M, but its designation was soon changed to VMF 1. The V stood for fixed wing aircraft the M for Marine, and the F for Fighter. This is one of the better moments or phases of Boyington's life as VMF-1 went around performing air shows. With his career on solid footing, Boyington brought his family to Virginia, and soon a daughter, Janet Sue, was born in January of 1938. But the bills still piled up. Marine pilots were not paid enough to support a growing family. Which increased the stress, which increased the need or the reason to seek out a bottle. By the opening of 1940, Boyington was in San Diego, California, as a part of VMF-2, and it was here that he was going up against the best men who would make names for themselves against the Japanese pilots in the coming war, such as John Kinney and Henry Eldrod, who both fought at Wake Island in December of 1941. John Kinney, after the Japanese attacked Wake Island, spent his time either in the air harassing the approaching Japanese vessels or cobbled together fighters from parts of damaged fighters to maintain an air presence. It was this, in large part, that helped the Americans hold out for two weeks. After the surrender, Kinney was made a POW for three and a half years in China. But then, with Chinese help, he escaped. Not to be outdone, Captain Eldrod flew to Wake Island on December 4th, 1941, with 12 fighters, their pilots, and ground crew. The Japanese came four days later, on December 8th. Another four days went by, and on December 12th, Eldrod alone took on 22 enemy planes, and he shot down two. Later, he strafed enemy ships and even managed to sink one, being the first man to sink a warship with small caliber bombs. This was achieved by dropping the bombs while flying over and aiming at the back of the ship, where they kept their depth charges. But soon enough, the defenders had lost all of their planes, so Elrod organized the remaining troops to defend the beaches. Several Japanese attempted landings were thwarted, but it was on December 23rd that Elrod was mortally wounded. He would be, in time, awarded the Medal of Honor. And there were others that Boyington would be flying with and against in practice, like Harold Indian Joe Bauer, who would go on to shoot down 11 enemy planes, and Bob Gaylor, who would take out another 13, both being awarded the Medal of Honor. Besides intense Mock air battles, all these men were qualified for carriers, and they all freely admitted that it was one of the scariest things they would ever do. In the summer of 1940, Boyington and all these pilots participated in Fleet Problem 21, a large naval exercise in Hawaiian waters. Indeed, it would be many of the operations worked out or tried here that would be used against the enemy in the future. Yet the results of this exercise also showed that more cooperation would be needed between the Army and Navy if they were to defeat the Japanese, if war came. Good luck with that. And when FDR ordered the fleet to remain at Pearl Harbor, tension and practice were raised to a whole new level. But for Bowington, it seems that there was always bad to tag along with the good. Around the time of the fleet exercise, child number three, girl number two, Gloria, came along. This just added to the financial resources flowing out of the family, which caused stress for both parents, and they both turned to alcohol and affairs, which only increased the overall stress. In October of 1940, Boynton was promoted to first lieutenant and ordered back to Pensacola, Florida, To be an instructor, and his pay was raised. That was the good news. The bad news was that he was the last of his squadron to be promoted. Not a good sign of things to come. And yet, it seemed that Fortune was about to smile on Pappy. He would soon be approached about joining the American Volunteer Group, American pilots who would go up against the Japanese, in planes over China and Burma, as the two Asian powers continued to duel it out. For Boeington, there was no downside. The pay was good, and the bonuses for shooting down an enemy plane were unbelievable, which would take care of his bills. As it was, the Marines had already stepped in and were taking a portion of each check to go against his ever-mounting bills. And he would be far away from Helen, as they each barely tolerated the presence of the other. As for the other confrontation between the Chinese and Japanese, Nationalist leader Chiang Kai-shek knew that he needed America's help, in some form, in any form, to hold back or at least slow down the Japanese, who soon controlled one-third of China. Thus, he sent Claire Chenault, a retired Army Air Force officer who had been advising the Nationalist leader since June of 1937, and others back to America to gather more pilots. Yes, they would have to quit the U.S. military, but they would receive pay that was superior, money that was coming from Washington to Chongqing, the new Nationalist capital. Further, they would be able to leave mock air battles. In the past, it would be the real thing, and all pilots always want to test themselves. But standing in the way of getting more American pilots was General George Marshall. He, like everyone else, guessed that war was coming with the Japanese, so it made sense to hold on to every trained pilot they had. Yet, Secretary of the Navy Frank Knox and Treasury Secretary Henry Morgenthau aligned themselves with the Chinese point of view that said the more the Japanese were blunted or bogged down in China, the less it could threaten American interests in the Pacific. Thus, FDR was persuaded by his cabinet officials to send 100 Curtis Wright P-40 fighter planes to China. And in April of 1941, just one month after he signed Lend-Lease into law, FDR then allowed authorized officers and enlisted men to resign for the military to then make for Burma to take on the Japanese. But as the U.S. was not currently at war with Japan, this all had to be done on the QT, or quietly. Hence, as was his wont, FDR used a private citizen A friend of his, one William Pauley, an airplane salesman who owned an aircraft factory in China to get the pilots over there. The now civilian pilots, or support staff, would join the American Volunteer Group, a dummy corporation set up by Pauley. To be sure, Hap Arnold, the head of the Army Air Corps, and some base commanders were against the AVG taking their best pilots away. But as the big boss was for it, all learned to keep their mouths shut. It was the summer of 1941 when Boyington was at his lowest point. His marriage was a joke. His only friend was his dog, fella. His pay was already spoken for by his creditors. And his only relief was the bottle. Which is when Boyington came face to face with one of these chenault Chang agents. The man had his story down pat. The Chinese nationalists were having a hard time of it. They were losing swaths of their country every month. What was needed were airmen, aggressive warriors, who would have a chance to really find out how good they were. And the more the Japanese were bogged down in Burma and China, the less American Pacific possessions had to worry about them. Further, the pilots would be able to raise their game to new heights and to learn about the enemy firsthand. And war between Japan and the United States was coming. Besides, there was the pay. $600 a month, which was double or even more than what the pilots were currently earning. And squadron commanders got $750 a month, which is why natural leaders were needed. All expenses were paid for, and best of all, for each Japanese aircraft that was shot down, an additional $500 would be awarded. Gladly, it was a time for heroes. But the salesman Richard Aldworth, who had flown with a similar volunteer group during the Great War, saved his best pitch for last. Did you know, he told the group of pilots that Boyington sat with, that our P-40s were faster, more maneuverable, and had a higher rate of climb than the enemy fighters, the Zeros. It would be like shooting fish in a barrel. And there was more. Quote, The Japs are flying antiquated junk over China. Many of your kills will be unarmed transports. I suppose you know that the Japanese are renowned for their inability to fly, and they all wear corrective glasses. Unquote. Boington didn't buy all this hooey, but it didn't matter. Later, he was honest enough to admit it wasn't testing himself against the enemy. It wasn't helping China. It was the money. He needed it, and Chenault had it. Plain and simple. Boynton signed on and promised to do one year. That should get him out of debt. And at the end of the year, he would be allowed to rejoin the Marines without loss of rank. There was no downside. So, on August 8, 1941, Boynton resigned from the Marines and prepared to get aboard a ship that would take him to Asia. As this was being done quietly, Boynton and the other pilots would pose as (coughs) clergymen who were heading to Asia to spread the good word, which would lead to its own series of strange events along the way. But it did matter. The Japanese already knew about the AVG and promised to sink the vessel long before it reached Burma.